Luke's record, his fifth gospel, we'll be looking primarily at verse 8. I'm going to read the first eight verses of the chapter. Luke, or Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Let us pray. Father, we humbly ask that by that Spirit promised by the Lord Jesus Christ, who now indwells believers and indwells the church as we gather, that you would illuminate your word to us and grant us understanding. And also, Father, grant us the courage, the strength, the ability by the Holy Spirit to obey and to live out the word that you teach. We ask for your guidance, we ask for your blessing, and we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of us well remember September 11, 2001. In fact, uh, many of us, I'm sure, witnessed the, the attack on the Twin Towers in New York City live on television as we were watching the burning of the first tower watching the airplane fly into the second tower. Also attacked on that day was the Pentagon. And we know, of course, that there was another attempted attack, uh, we believe intended on Congress, that was foiled and crashed in western Pennsylvania. But in New York City, at the Twin Towers, is where we now find Ground Zero. That attack, that location, captured the hearts of a nation like nothing had done since the attack on Pearl Harbor 70 years before. And so it is now called Ground Zero. Ground Zero is a, a point of attack or a point of tragedy, some occurrence that has happened that brings together the people of a nation and from Ground Zero, a rallying center, a rallying cry then radiates out with resolve and solidarity from that point. Remember the Alamo. Remember the Maine, if you know your history very well. London, during the Blitz in World War I, and of course, Pearl Harbor. These are all ground, ground zero, places where something horrific happened, at least in the context of that time. But something that galvanized the people of that society, the people of that area, 
into responding to that attack with resolve and solidarity. Ground Zero is always considered to be the center out from which radiates the response to whatever happened. Ground Zero is also and applicably considered the point at which we drop a bomb, particularly a nuclear bomb. Ground Zero is the center of the bullseye, the target. But for our purposes in studying this verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're going to focus primarily on that which radiates out from Ground Zero. Jerusalem is where Jesus tells his disciples in verse 4, they are to remain. They are to not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Jerusalem. This is a ground zero where the most tragic defeat, the most tragic event that ever befell mankind took place. And that is the crucifixion of the sinless Lord of glory. But Jerusalem would also become ground zero for the ultimate victory that would flow from that tragic defeat. And I say defeat only because of the appearance of defeat. That the death of Christ at Golgotha would produce victory of God and man over sin, over death, and over Satan. Jerusalem, the place where God caused his name to dwell. Jerusalem, the place where God caused his son to die. Jesus says of Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Has there ever been a city who has captured the imagination and the devotion of so much of mankind as the city of Jerusalem? Jerusalem is the world center, of course, of Judaism. It is also the Holy Grail to many Christians. It was the the holy city that many of the Christian crusades so wrongly tried to set free. And Jerusalem contains the third holiest site in the religion of Islam. Jerusalem is truly unique in the history of mankind, far, far older than New York City and far more significant in the devoted hearts of mankind than New York City. Fernando Ortega, singer with whom I'm sure some of you are familiar, writes a very hauntingly beautiful song called simply Jerusalem. He takes from the words of the prophet Ezekiel and one refrain in this song, Jerusalem, city of thrones, the blood of your people still darkens your stones. City of sorrows set on a hill, the pride of the prophets, they dream of you still. Has there ever been a city that has captivated the hearts of men more than Jerusalem? Jesus said of Jerusalem, nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. What an enigma. What a contradiction. A city that God chooses in which to place his name through the temple and through the Levitical sacrifice and through the law 
Also a city where God sends his prophets to declare his word. And a city that stones and kills those prophets. Ultimately taking the one final word of God, the Son of God, and nailing him to a cross. He commanded them to stay in Jerusalem, not to leave until you receive the power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jerusalem would become ground zero for the spread of the kingdom of God. From Pentecost on to this day and beyond, Jerusalem remains ground zero. Verse 8 gives us both a concise outline of the whole of the book of Acts and the missionary plan of God for the whole of this period between the ascension of Christ and his second coming. As an outline, Luke will follow the pattern of verse 8 in concentric circles, beginning in Jerusalem, which is where we will find ourselves in chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost and Peter has his first sermon and 3,000 souls are baptized and then we will remain in Jerusalem for quite a while actually as those are added daily who should be saved. But then Judea and Samaria will factor into it as the disciples, the apostles will, will venture out somewhat on day trips from Jerusalem. And they will spread the gospel into the region around ancient Israel, Judea and Samaria. But where do we end? We travel with the apostles, particularly the apostle Paul. And we end up in Rome, which itself is another ground zero, from which the gospel will then spread beyond, beyond the book of Acts, beyond the lives of the apostles, but well into our own day. To the Jew of the first century, Rome would represent the uttermost parts of the world. It has been said that all roads lead to Rome, but roads are two ways. And if all roads lead to Rome, they also lead from Rome. Out into Europe, eventually into the New World, into Africa, into Asia, with the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, as Jesus said, which must be preached to the very ends of the earth. And then the end shall come. But where does it begin? It begins at ground zero. It begins where the Lord of glory died. And it begins where the risen Lord will pour out his spirit. The impact of Pentecost. And we're really at Luke is, is very gently leading us up to Pentecost. Now we conservative reformed evangelicals don't like that word, Pentecost, because it reminds us of Pentecostals who do things that scare us. I'm hoping that as we read Luke, we will, we will again recover the meaning of Pentecost. And the analogy that I used just a few moments ago, I think, is very appropriate to the day of Pentecost. It is like that nuclear explosion and if you've ever seen a video of a nuclear explosion, of course there is the mushroom cloud and there was the very visible tongues of fire who were settling upon the disciples. But right after that mushroom cloud, what is most noticeable and most impactful, I know that's not a word, 
are the shock waves that move out from ground zero. And that's what we're reading about. These are concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Concentric circles of conquest. Remember the analogy that I've been trying to make between the book of Acts and the book of Joshua. Jesus has come. Jesus has finished his work. He has died on the cross. He's been laid in the tomb. He has risen. And now he pours out that which is promised. And out from ground zero radiates the conquest of the Spirit over the souls and the sins of men. But it all begins in Jerusalem. Because the gospel is, as Paul tells us, to the Jew first. This is the first circle of conquest. It is common in our day because of a particular teaching that has been popular for the past 150 years or so. It is common for us to think that God rejected Israel because Israel rejected her Messiah. Well, this is both unbiblical and it is also unhistorical. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel and these, those within Israel who were his sheep, he found. He said he would find them. He said he would gather them, and he said that no man or no power would be able to take them from his hands. It was to the Jew first. Jesus Christ did not conquer sin. He did not conquer death and the grave. He did not conquer Satan, only to be defeated by Jewish unbelief. To the Jew first, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. Now that also is used by Luke as an outline, as a pattern for the missionary work of the church from Jerusalem and beyond. Where did they go first? Paul, in all of his journeys, would first go to the synagogue. Or if there was no synagogue, he would go to where the Jews would meet on the Sabbath. To the Jew first. What is the benefit of being a Jew, Paul asks rhetorically. He says, great in every way. Theirs are the promises. Theirs is the covenant. We're not going to find, as we read through the book of Acts, God repudiating Judaism. We're not going to find him jettisoning Israel. What we are going to find him doing is in Jesus Christ breaking down the dividing wall and taking the wild branches of the Gentiles and grafting them into the vine, grafting them into the trunk to the Jew first. And so we read in Acts chapter 2, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. What kind of souls? Jewish souls. And later on in that chapter, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. As the kingdom begins to grow from ground zero, yes, it is met with the rejection by the Jewish leaders, by the Sanhedrin, by the Sadducees, by many of the Pharisees, but we are told that many of the priests themselves believed to the Jew first. There is no room or grounds for anti-Semitism 
in the church of Jesus Christ. There are two extremes that we have found throughout Christian history that are both wrong and dangerous. The one is, of course, anti-Semitism, where preachers have stood in pulpits and have, have stirred up hatred and violence to the Jewish people because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, calling, him the, calling them the Christ killers. And much horrific atrocity has been committed against that people in the name of Christianity. And there is no foundation for that in Scripture. We benefit as Gentiles from the people of the Jews and from the Jewish Messiah and from the promise that was given in ancient times to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews. But at the other extreme, and this may be more prevalent in our day, anti-Semitism having hopefully been largely defeated in, in our country, although it is rearing its head again in Europe. But in our day within the church, there is an attitude that elevates the Jew to being of a better position than even the Christian. And many people teach in their eschatology and in their soteriology that Christians are second-class citizens of the kingdom. What we really would like to be is a Jew. But we can't be. And there is no distinction now between Jew or Gentile. We're going to see that a little bit later this morning. And so there are no grounds for anti-Semitism in the church, but also no grounds for exalting the status of the Jew, as if a Jew without Christ was somehow in a better position than a Gentile in Christ. There's always a prayer in the church. There must always be a prayer in the church that God would remove the hardening and the blindness that has come upon His people Israel. I know that there are those within the Reformed tradition that believe that the church has taken place of Israel, that Israel no longer has a place in the plan of God. I think that I could agree with that if somehow we could re remove Romans 9, 10, and 11 from our Bibles then I might be able to be convinced that God no longer has a purpose or a plan. I will confess I do not know what that purpose or plan is, except to know, as Paul says in Romans 11, if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Their rejection of the Messiah has turned out for our incredible blessing, the reconciliation of the world to God. But Paul holds out, yet future, their acceptance. And it will be an incredibly glorious time. The first circle of conquest then was Jerusalem, the Jewish people. But then Jesus says, you will be my witnesses also in Judea and Samaria, moving out from Jerusalem into the area where the common Jew lived alongside another group of people who were half-breeds, mixed race, despised, the Samaritans. We can't understand what that word would have sounded like 
in the ears of the disciples. But if I had a blackboard up here and I ran my fingers across it, you would get an idea. We read Samaritans or we read Samaria and what do we think? Oh, it's just another part of the geography of Palestine, right? No. These were a people who had mixed their Jewish blood with the blood of Gentiles. During the Assyrian captivity, when the ten tribes of northern Israel were removed from the land, we read in the Old Testament that the people who were then brought in, and this was the policy of the Assyrians, to prevent rebellions within their empire, they would take the people from one territory and transplant them to another, and they would divide them. Then they would bring people from another territory back into the northern area of Samaria. But those people were being eaten up by the lions. They didn't know how to raise the crops. They were, they were dying out. And it was because, as it was reasoned in the court of Assyria, they didn't know the gods of the land. So let's take some of the Jews that we captured and bring them back. And those Jews would marry the Gentiles that had been brought in from other areas of the Assyrian Empire, and because of their locale in Samaria, they would be called Samaritans, a mixed-race people. They were shunned by the Jews. Jesus shocked his disciples in traveling from Jerusalem and Judea up to Galilee Instead of crossing over the Jordan and passing along the east side in the desert, which every righteous Jew would do to avoid any contact with a Samaritan, Jesus went right up through Samaria. Next thing you know, he's talking with a woman of Samaria who was herself a woman of ill repute. Jesus had a way of shocking people with his actions he said to her, you worship that which you do not know. We, meaning the Jews, worship that which we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. We need to remember that. Ground zero. Salvation is from the Jews, but salvation is from the Jews to the Jews, but also to the Samaritans. Again, the disciples would have been incredibly shocked. This is not... This is not a geographical circle here. This is a cultural one. This is one that doesn't really take us far geographically, physically from Jerusalem. But it takes us really far from the mindset of the first century Jew. Oh, wait a minute. We're going to let them in? We're going to let these mixed-race half-breeds in? We're, we're going to let these dark-skinned people in? We're going to let these Orientals in? We're going to let people in to the church that are different than us? What are you talking about, Jesus? Just as there is no room for anti-Semitism in the church, there's no room for prejudice either. Paul teaches us that regeneration Reconciliation through Jesus Christ is a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ in all and is all. This was a hard lesson for the Jews, the earliest Jewish believers, even the apostles. 
to learn. But you know what? I think it remains the hardest lesson for us to learn today. And in every generation of the church, we cannot deny that there are cultural distinctions within our human society. We cannot deny, without being naive, we cannot deny that in our minds and in our hearts we have bigotry. That we look upon people who are different from us and we look upon them with, with disdain and perhaps even with hatred. Sadly, we cannot deny that this attitude has largely prevailed within the church of Jesus Christ throughout its history. Frankly, I don't know what it will take to desegregate the churches of Jesus Christ, especially in the South. I don't know. I don't know what it will take except an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in revival. Something of the nature of the vision that was given to Peter when the voice said to him, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, I, I have never touched that which is unclean. And God said, or the voice said, do not call unclean that which I have cleansed. He has cleansed the Samaritan. He has cleansed the African American. He has cleansed the Southeast Asian. He has cleansed the Hispanic. And folks, he's even cleansed the Northern Europeans. Us white folk. There is no room for prejudice within the Church of Jesus Christ. And I wish, I wish we as elders could just come up with a program that would somehow convey to the various ethnic and racial communities within our city that there is no room for prejudice at the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know that a program like that would work because I think you are all aware prejudice is also a two-way street. It is not the monopoly of white people to be prejudiced. It has only been the historic situation that the white people have been dominant and therefore have had the opportunity to express their prejudice in manners of military, enslavement, and other economic oppression. But I would guarantee you because of the nature of sin that if the, if the vagarities of history had turned out otherwise and had Africa been supreme rather than Europe, then slavery would have been the other direction. And the whites would have been enslaved to the blacks. Because that is the nature of fallen man, to be divided. But it is the nature of the Holy Spirit in the church. The second circle of conquest is to overcome cultural, ethnic, and racial divisions within the church where there is no distinction. God is no respecter of men. We are all sinners in need of salvation through grace and through Jesus Christ. And so the gospel of the kingdom takes us to the Jew first and then it takes the Jew beyond his comfort zone to the Samaritan and then it takes the Jew beyond, way beyond his comfort zone and then to the Greek. And as Jesus says, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the world. I want to read a very prominent prophecy 
from Isaiah chapter 2. Just a couple of verses, verses 2 and 3. But one that, that guided the thoughts of, of Jewish rabbis and scribes and priests in the second temple era of the first century. Starting in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. like it, but primarily this passage led to an expectation within Second Temple Judaism and one that is now present within the evangelical Christianity that there will come a day when Mount Zion, Jerusalem, will be the physical center to which all the nations will come to receive salvation and sanctification from the Lord. Again, it will be that ground zero, but not from which, but rather to which. And even within the early church, there were those who believed in Jesus Christ, but who also believed that for a Gentile to receive salvation, he must first become a Jew. He must be circumcised. He must obey the laws and the ordinances and the statutes of Moses. In other words, wherever he lives, he must spiritually come to Jerusalem to be saved. But the mountain of the Lord or the mountain of the house of the Lord is not a geographical center on a map. This is one of those passages that I believe Jesus would say, He who has eyes to see, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It is not the temple that Solomon built or that Zerubbabel built or that Herod the Great built. That is not the house of the Lord. Jesus himself said, tear down that temple and I will build it up again in three days. And John informs us he spoke of the temple of his body. And the mountain of the house of the Lord is not Mount Moriah. It is not the temple mount on which now stands the Al-Asqa Mosque of Islam, the third holiest site in that religion. It is the same mountain of which we have already read in Daniel chapter 2. That mountain that began as a small stone cut without hands, that rolled down the hill and crushed that pagan statue into dust. And then Daniel tells us, or the Lord tells us through Daniel, that that stone will grow into a mountain that will cover the whole earth. Again, radiating outward, not inward. Listen carefully to what Isaiah does say, or the Lord says, For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The third circle of conquest, then, is the Gentile world. Us, the people of the nations, the people of the far coastlands. The disciples were to stay in Jerusalem because ground zero was where the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. 
They were to stay in Jerusalem because the gospel of the kingdom was to the Jew first. But they were not to stay there forever. Perhaps they got a little bit complacent and comfortable because after the time in which they found favor with all men that we read of in Acts came a period of persecution. And that persecution served to spread them out from Jerusalem. Now, in the book of Acts, we really only follow one, one and a half of the original disciples, Peter and John, though we don't really know much about where John traveled. And then, of course, Paul. But Paul wasn't in that ground zero crowd. Nonetheless, the church is not without its traditions. Matthew is believed to have gone to China. There is some evidence, archaeologically, that Thomas may have gone as far as India. Andrew, it is believed, preached the gospel in Pakistan, in the Hindu Kush mountains, and up into Central Asia. There's one website that has them all eventually getting to Britain. I didn't look it up, but I think it might have been a Brit who did that website. <laughs> Luke takes us to Rome. That's what we have in the book of Acts. But as I said, Rome was, as it were, another ground zero. Rome was the mistress of the world. Rome was Babylon of that day. Rome was the citadel of evil, the citadel of the city of man, as Augustine would later call it. Luke takes us to Rome, and then, with a very abrupt ending, leaves it to our imagination where it would go from there. We, 21st century, we're on the outer rings of this third circle of conquest. And I know that there are missionaries and missionary agencies that tell us about peoples who have not been reached by the gospel in our world today. But I would have to say that there, there's never been a time in the history of the church where there are fewer people that have not been reached by the preaching of the gospel. The circles have indeed gone out from Jerusalem around the world, and in many cases we have what are called burnt-over districts. Most of Europe is a burnt-over district, massively influenced in a positive way by the gospel, but eventually apostatizing and leaving that and entering into what is also called a post-Christian era. It's kind of like what remains after the nuclear shockwaves move through. Shadows on the wall of what was once live devotion. Our country is approaching that as well. But the frontier of the gospel today is probably more cultural now than it is geographic. I know that most missionary organizations still harp upon Matthew 28. Go into the world and make disciples, as if the go were the imperative. And so missionary organizations still send people around, church after church after church, deputizing, raising money so they can go to a place where they are not wanted. That they can go to a place that we have too often done more to impose our culture than Christ upon the people. That we go to a place where the gospel has already been. I know of missionaries that, you know, I'm a missionary to Italy. Oh, I should suffer so much. 
Here I am, Lord, send me. <laughs> I think we've got it wrong. We're sending people out into the world and to other nations when there are lost souls all around us. When in the church, we're not even able to open up the door to people of a lower socioeconomic level, of a different skin color, of a different racial background. But rather, we want to build walls. We want to isolate ourselves. We don't want to lock our doors. We want to live in gated communities. But we'll write the check for that missionary to go over to some Timbuktu and preach the gospel. This is the third circle of conquest, but it's no longer the world geographically as it is the world culturally, the world in our own neighborhoods, the world in our own workplaces. And this is our challenge. All of us were once outcasts. All of us who are Gentiles were once without hope and without God in the world. Read that from the pen of Paul in Ephesians. Without hope and without God. Because the covenant was with the people of Israel. And the hope and the prophets, they were Israel. And the Messiah was promised to Israel. We were outcasts. We had no claim upon God. We had nothing but our own sin, our own depravity. But by His grace and mercy, He drew us in by the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. As outcasts, we have no right to cast another out. You know I have spoken before about the immigration issue. and You know that my position on immigration does not align neatly with conservative republicanism. In fact, it doesn't align at all. And a lot of that is because my grandfather fled war-torn Europe, fled Sicily, where people could no longer make a living, fled an Austrian prisoner of war camp, where most of the Italian army spent the war, because the Italians haven't fought since they were the Romans. And he came to this country, and he came to Ellis Island, and he came to that statue, and I'm here instead of there. I'm here now dreaming of the day that I might go back as an American and visit this still impoverished island off the boot of Italy where I might, had God's providence been different, I might have been born and raised there under the dark cloud of Catholicism. I was an outcast. My grandfather was an outcast. We were all once outcasts. We cannot cast another out. We're still enlisted in this same battle of witnesses that Jesus calls his disciples to. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Let us pray. Father, we humbly ask that you would continue the work that you began at Ground Zero, even in this place. And we acknowledge to you that we do not know how to cross the barriers of cultural division that we have in our own society and within our own church. And so we ask, Father, that in each one of us, in our hearts, 
that there would be no distinction between Jew or Greek, barbarian, Scythian, free, black, white, yellow, or brown. But Christ is all and in all. And we long to see your churches filled, not with the lily white, not with all African Americans, not entirely Hispanic, but that every tongue, tribe, and nation would be represented under each roof as it will be in the new heaven and the new earth, as it should be in the kingdom as it grows on earth today. We pray that you would do this by your spirit, for we have no power to do so ourselves. But we long to see the truth of the unity of the gospel of the kingdom in our own day. And we ask this, Father, for your glory and for the exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand this morning for the benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I ask that as I read this benediction from the pen of Paul that you would consider the Samaritans in your life. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.